Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a normal book club, except if you made snacks, you don't have to share them. This month, we're talking about Ruman Alam's delicious and unsettling domestic apocalypse novel, Leave the World Behind. If you haven't read the book yet and you don't want it to be spoiled for you, go check out the spoiler-free author interview that's already in our feed. If you don't care about spoilers or you've already read the book, you are in the right place. I am so excited to introduce you to our panel this month. It includes two fantastic readers and writers. First up, we have writer and book critic Bethann Patrick, also known as the Book Maven on Twitter. Bethann, hey. Hey, Greta. Glad to be here. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. Thrilled to have you. We also have Lisa Page, an English professor at George Washington University and faculty member at the Yale Writers Workshop who co-edited the collection We Wear the Mask, 15 True Stories of Passing in America. Lisa, welcome. So nice to be here, Greta. Oh, my gosh. It is just it really is my pleasure. I'm just going to gush over you to this entire time. So I hope you're ready for that. Uh, We're also going to be hearing from some of you. We got some great voicemails this time around, and I can't wait to listen to them as we chat about the book. Let's start with a quick synopsis. Leave the World Behind starts with Amanda and Clay. They're a white couple with two kids. Archie is 15. Rose is 13. They live in New York City. But the book opens with them on their way to an Airbnb for a vacation on Long Island. And there's lots of hot dogs and sunshine. But on the first night that they're there, there's a knock at the door. It's Ruth and G.H. Washington, who are an older black couple, and they say they own the house. They've just fled from Manhattan because of unexpected blackouts, and they need a place to stay. What unfolds is an intentionally mysterious story, which I have to admit drove some of our readers nuts, and we will get to some of that ambiguity eventually. But first, I'm curious for you, Lisa and Bethann, about the context when you first read this book. Bethann, let's start with you, because I think you read it before Lisa did. I, I know that I read it very quickly when it came out because I'm a big fan of Ramon's writing, and so I had an early um, galley of it, an early advanced reader edition, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I loved it from start to finish. I gobbled it up. And as we'll probably get into a little bit later, I know that even people who don't love the book read it really quickly because Mm -hmm. it is that compelling and looming and ominous and pacey. Yes, pacey is such a good way of putting it. So Lisa, you read this more recently, right? Yes, I just finished it actually and could not put it down. (laughs) It is such a compelling read such a disturbing read, but also the thing I love about this writer is his ability around pacing, as Beth Ann said, but also the interiority, how he enters these characters and brings them to life. Yes. So yeah, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about both of those things. I think we should start with a voicemail, though, because 
I don't know. I feel like this is one of those books where the context of reading it, especially now during a pandemic, is so striking. Let's listen to Liz in Minnesota. Hey, Nerdette. It's Liz from Roseville, Minnesota. And I read Leave the World Behind last summer when it came out. I listened to it on audio during walks when I was escaping my own home. Um, Yeah, let's just say that added to like the weird sense of disquiet walking through like a reservoir woods. Um, (laughs) You have this entire book happening around you that is supposed to make you uncomfortable. And I could not shake that feeling. So cannot wait for the discussion. Thank you again for choosing this book because I. this is definitely a book that gets better the more you think about it and the more you hear other people's thoughts about it. So cannot wait. Thank you so much. Bye. I love that insight about that it gets better the more you think about it. I think that is so true. I also related to Liz because I listened to this book as well, partly because it was narrated by Marin Ireland, who I'm kind of obsessed with. She's like, she's just one of my favorite audiobook narrators. And while I didn't walk around in empty reservoirs, I walked the dog this summer in like empty city streets, which was also just like kind of perfectly eerie while listening to this book. I imagine it would be an amazing audio book. I mm-hmm. only read it, quote unquote, uh, 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 on the page. <laughs> but even so, the dread, the fear. And Lisa talked about the interiority of the characters. And Greta, I don't want to jump ahead of anything with you, but I told you I have some thoughts about a, a review that Ruth Franklin wrote in the New York uh, Review of Books. And I just want to talk about that for a second because one of the things that Franklin said is she didn't think there was enough character development, that Mm -hmm. there wasn't enough going on in bringing these characters to the point where you could care about them and wonder about how they would react um, as things went along. And and, uh, I have two things to say about that. And the first one Mm -hmm. is about the fact that one of the reasons I love the book is because the characters were both static and flat characters, which are two different things. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And so I enjoyed it for that. But also what Lisa said about interiority is what made the characters not seem quite so flat all the time. Uh, I thought they're Hmm. not necessarily developing a whole lot, but Here's what I think. I almost think that what uh, Alam is trying to say is if something like this happens, it's going to happen so fast that you are not going to grow as a human being. You are going to be reacting as who you are. (laughs) And that's why getting into their heads, that interiority was so important for me. I felt like, okay, I, you know, Clay is not perhaps the most woke guy in the universe. Right. I mean, they're not the best humans to spend time in their heads, for sure. But also, I think Alam is having fun with us. Yes. He names him Clay. Uh, You know, immediately, the suggestion is the feet of Clay uh, to me. Um, And he is so busy being sort of hyper-masculine in terms of taking care of things and then not taking care of them, um, that his name really works here. But, you know, with Amanda, Clay, George, 
and Ruth, and of course, the, the kids as well. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like they aren't getting, we're not getting a lot of their backstory or anything more about them because they're reacting. They have to. This is a, a situation where things happen really quickly. And even though it's a novel and we're reading and we're getting some of the third person narrator's view of things. So we see the wide plank wooden floors and we see the different kinds of cake mix and all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. They are reacting in real time to things that are happening that they don't have very much information about. Right. So I thought this was quite, I thought it was quite an authentic way actually of presenting the characters. Well, and I think what's so fascinating about this book, I think especially when you compare it to other like apocalypse stories mm-hmm. like The Road or Station Eleven is that, you know, it reminds me of something that Afia Akatora said in the New York Times review of this book, which is faced with the end of the world, you wouldn't do a damn thing. You know, and when you think about what their reaction is, in a lot of ways, it's not reacting at all, right? It's clinging on to normal life as closely, you know, it's making cake. It's putting sprinkles on. It's thinking about laundry, you know? It's going out to the pool. It's driving down yes. the road and thinking that maybe you'll find something friendly and instead finding something incomprehensible. Yeah. What did you think, Lisa? Yeah, I'm stuck on some other elements of the book, frankly. I The, the apocalyptic piece of the book is so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. The clashes around race, around yes. class. Um, around entitlement to me are at the center of this book. Yes. And we actually finished with, you know, we still don't know what's happening and et cetera. Um, but the real energy of the book to me is the t- those tensions. And I, I would argue that uh, it's very emblematic of American culture. We are stuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny because the next line I have in my little script says, what do you think this book is saying about what it means to be American? <laughs> I, you know, Lisa, so well said, because from that very first encounter when G.H. and Ruth knock on the door, I mean, let's face it, uh, th- there is a get out element in, in there. I love the way mm-hmm. he did that through the whole book, you know, using Amanda and Clay to show what people who think they are well-intentioned, liberal, middle-class, white Americans, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was something Afia Akatora said in the New York Times book review, who talked about the fact that in the book, when uh, George and Ruth arrive, there is no white reader who is going to be untouched by the fact that for a second, they think, oh, what's going on here? Even... Right. If you don't think, uh, you might say, oh, well, gosh, just some people arriving who need help. Even if you have the best intention for a second when you're white, you're thinking, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? And Alam is not letting any of us off the hook. Yeah, Alam really specializes in this kind of tension. He's very good at setting up sort of opposites. Um, so in this case, you've got the wealthy black couple and the middle class white couple. Uh-huh. You know, he's he's playing them off each other. Um, he's done that in his previous work as well. And the expectations that they have about each other 
adds to the tension. It's really brilliant. Um, he's, he, again, is all about uh, breaking down real human response. And there's a scene in the book, for me, that was like one of the worst scenes in the book. I know what um, it's going to go. Keep going. I know what it's going to be. <laughs> when Clay gets lost and he's mm. driving around and a Latina woman comes yes! up, you know, singles, yes! calls him down. He rolls his window down and, and tries to talk to her and she can't speak English. She can only speak Spanish. So he just leaves her by the road and keeps on going. And Clay, okay, remember too, he's, he's an English professor. He uh, reviews books for the New York Times. He's pretty full of himself and his understanding <laughs> of the world, even as he's also very aware of his failings. And this scene, particularly, he doesn't want to tell anybody about the fact that he even got lost, let alone that he left this woman, you know, right. by the side of the road. Oh, it was just, it. oh, Greta, that scene just, oh. it, it, it really wrenched me. I, I thought, you know, here you are in this terrible situation, and yet you're not helping another person. Yeah, so I'm curious, especially to hear what you think, Lisa, about, like, so I did not read the blurb about this book, the synopsis of this book before I, I think I knew, I think I knew essentially what I set up at the top where it was like a white family goes on vacation and the black homeowners knock on the door one night because things are weird. That was pretty much what I knew. I actually thought it was going to be much more, I mean, I don't want to say comedy of manners, but I, I thought it was going to lean much more into those dynamics than it did in some ways because we end up with this apocalypse storyline as well. Do you, were you dissatisfied by that? Or do you think it did what it needed to do even given what happened in the story? Well, I'm with you, actually. I thought the same thing. I thought we would go deeper into those dynamics, but given the outside circumstances and all of the, the noise and the cracking glass and people getting ill, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he took a sort of out and away from their particular um, relationships. So, but for me, that's where the energy of the book is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was just so fascinating and intense and it's such an interesting tension to place on top of catastrophic things going on outside as well, I think. Yes. You know, Maureen Corrigan said um, something in her NPR review that mm -hmm. um, kind of invents a new genre in this book. Mm -hmm. Be and it's because, you know, at first you think it's going to be one kind of book, and then you think it's going to be that kind of book plus something else. And then it turns again. And it, it you know, I don't even know how many times it turns, but that was part of the, the pleasure of the book for me, that it was not what it immediately seemed. And there's gender stuff, too. I mean, yeah. the gender stuff oh, yeah. is with Ruth and her lesbian daughter um, and her granddaughters. Who we never meet, but we hear about. Yes. There's a lot of mourning to me in this book, uh, a lot of sadness about not being able to uh, reach out or to understand people who are different and mm. they're all forced to deal with each other as different people. 
Yeah. Well, and what you say about gender dynamics, too, I mean, I think it's even on the first page of the book where they're still driving up and Amanda's like, is it feminist of me to let my husband drive us to vacation? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just it starts right off the bat with like this fascinating level of 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 self-awareness, but still ignorance yeah. that like that that tone and the the humor of that tone was such a pleasure to read, I have to say. Absolutely. Uh, he does women so well. And yeah. I mean, it's, people have talked about it with his previous books um, in, in that he, he gets how we talk and how we think and he gets um, entitlements and how that works uh, across the board. That's a really good way of putting that. So speaking of Maureen Corrigan's review, I think she, at least at the top, used the word thriller to describe this book. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, it's you're definitely right that she goes into the idea that this book defies genres. But I was curious if either of you would call this book a thriller. I would not. For me, a thriller, you have all kinds of suspense and then mm-hmm. you've got a happy ending. Sorry. <laughs> it's resolved. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying this isn't a thriller because it's too intense. I'm saying it doesn't get resolved. Yes. Yes, yes absolutely. Huh. And what is so fascinating about the genre bending that he does is he combines what you were both mentioning earlier, this sort of comedic comedy of manners um, feel and then turns it into something dystopian and disturbing and where you're looking at your fellow humans. Uh, it almost also made me think of, uh, I can't remember, the passage, the passage. You, you know, it reminded me a little bit of that because you could imagine that if things went on, you know, that is what might happen. You know, the the family, you know, driving the son, trying to get somewhere safe and that there are fewer and fewer safe places to go. So, uh, yeah, not not a thriller, but definitely a dystopian novel with uh, a lot of class and race consciousness. Mm-hmm. I will. I agree with you, Beth Ann, and I also think that I I can see where Corrigan is coming from in terms of the pacing. It yes. does yes. pacing of a thriller. It does, though. I generally think of thrillers to be a little plottier. You know, like when you really boil down what happens in this book, it's a very short period of time. There's not a lot of action. Well, you know, I so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Okay. To me, the flamingos appearing out of nowhere. Oof. Yeah. It, yeah. Serious action. And likewise, one of the most beautiful scenes for me is when the deer um, yes. congregate and you've got hundreds of deer. That's a lot of very suggestive action um, and, and, not, and also visuals, the visual. Um, the visuals. Oh, my God. The teeth. He's very good at throwing in surprises. You're right. You're right. Well, can we talk about visuals for a second? Yes. Can we talk about visuals right after we take a break? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In just a minute, we're going to talk about the visuals. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Okay, Bethann, before we dive into visuals, I know I promised you, we actually have a voicemail about that topic. So let's listen to that first. Here's Christy. Hi, Nerdette. This is Christy Fisher calling from Tacoma, Washington. I love the show. I've been listening for what feels like a million years, and um, I'm loving the book club. The only thing I have to say is that I almost died with that teeth scene. I literally had to close my eyes and stop reading. Um, Incredible writing. Incredible book. Can't wait to hear the episode. Okay, Bethann, go. (laughs) So I wanted to say, as many of us already know, this book was snatched up right away as an adaptation. Yes, before it even came out. Before it even came out, um, starring Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. And Mm -hmm. let me tell you, I know why those visuals are going to make such a compelling movie. And I think... I'm so glad that Lisa mentioned them specifically because if you don't take care in reading it, yes, you almost can el- elide over them and just think, oh, that, that happens off screen. But mm-hmm. no, it's right in front of those characters. Mm-hmm. And Alam is so smart to give those sightings to the young people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we kind of talked a little bit about the vagueness around this book, especially I think it was in the New Yorker book review. It was called a, a disaster novel without a disaster. <laughs> um, we got a couple of, of voicemails about it. I actually got an email even a couple weeks ago now that was someone who she was essentially saying like as a very type A person this book stressed me out a lot because I didn't know where to put all of that tension so anyway let's listen to two voicemails about it first is Ava and then Rachel and then we can we can talk about it a little more after that hi nerdette this is Ava from Peoria Illinois and I'm calling about this month's book club pick leave the world behind I really loved the book And I really loved all the characters. I didn't like the characters, especially the adults, but I loved reading about them and kind of feeling how they were fleshed out and their different mannerisms and all of that. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you all think about the vague, ambiguous disaster. You know, what is going on? I'm super glad I listened to the author chat before reading the book. So I kind of knew that we weren't going to find out what happened. So I was prepared not to be looking for a solution and not to be disappointed because I really think that could have felt that way if you didn't know that you weren't going to find out. I can't wait to hear what you think of the book. Thanks. Bye. All right. Let's hear Rachel. There are so many parts of the book that I loved. The characters, the flaws that they had, the fact that they knew their flaws and that they almost recognized their privilege. All of that was great. However... I felt like I was being led to believe throughout the whole time that we would have some answers. Why only the Northeast? What was happening with the birds and the deer? What was the noise? Throughout, there was some foreshadowing that we would know, but then it just stopped. And 
Maybe the editor just chopped off the two-thirds of the book at the end, but I felt frustrated and confused, which might be the point. But I would rather have at least some more answers than truly having no idea what was going on in their world. So where do you two fall on that spectrum of, I mean, it seems like it was very intentional on his part that we don't know exactly what's wrong because then we as readers during a pandemic and any other number of crises can superimpose whatever crisis we want onto the story. But I'm curious if either of you found it frustrating that there wasn't more. Well, for me, this was a part of Alam's uh, genius um, mm. that he leaves it hanging the way he does because that's how it would be Mm -hmm. Um, under these circumstances. There is no closure. There is maybe, you know, in 15 years there is, um, uh, but you know, he's talking about how the deer eventually um, their descendants are born whites because of trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not going to get the full story because that would lead us into an entire other book. I also think, and I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic, Greta, because uh, I think that's part of this book's appeal is its synchronicity with what we're all experiencing right now. We don't know what's going to happen next, even as uh, vaccines rolled out and et cetera, et cetera. We've Mm -hmm. been in these um, terrible um, times where we can't control what's going on. And these characters cannot control what's going on. And that sense of powerlessness uh, is center, uh, central to the book. Yeah, well, and I have to admit, I have been making a lot of cake over here. I don't know about it <laughs> <y'all>, but... <laughs> uh, you know, it kind of, it reminded me, just bear with me, a very quick story. Years ago, when my husband and I lived in Berlin, Chernobyl happened, big disaster, very terrible thing. And we didn't know much about what was going on. We knew we might be affected. And months after the disaster happened, we heard on the Armed Forces Network radio, it is now safe to drink the milk. You may now drink the milk that you get at the commissary. And I thought, no one ever told us we shouldn't drink the milk at the commissary, oh or I God. missed that bulletin. And yeah. my point is, you know, you don't get all of bulletins. And that's one of the things that I loved about the encroaching disaster in this novel is, you know, they don't have all the information that's so accurate. Gosh, it is now safe to drink the milk. That's a, what an amazing phrase. Wow. What a story. Uh, We have a couple other pretty great voicemails I want to make sure we get to. This one from Lane is really nice. Let's take a listen. Hi, Greta and Nerdette. This is Lane from Minnesota. I'm calling about Leave the World Behind. And this is not my favorite read. I almost didn't finish it. The redeeming part for me was the last chapter. I was really grateful that Rose was safe And really relieved that somebody had made a decision to go off and do something like try to find help or try to connect with other people and see if they needed help. And her just going off and doing that on her own was so great. And if there had been more of that in the book, like that spirit of community and helpfulness, 
I probably would have really enjoyed this book a whole lot more. Um, so I was really grateful that that chapter happened and that the book ended on that note. And I think it really speaks to the hopefulness I feel for the next generations of people to address climate change, that hopefully they will not just sit around hand-wringing and will actually do something. Thanks for a great conversation. Have a great weekend. I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at that. I think it is too. I, I think though that Alam sort of specializes in people making mistakes repeatedly, failing <laughs> repeatedly. Um, they persevere, but they continue to fail and get back mm. up again. That's um, been evident in some of his mm-hmm. other work as well. And to me, it's what makes the novel so realistic. I agree with you, Lisa. And in hearing that that voicemail, that message, I thought, oh, this is one of the failings of being a critic sometimes is I don't always read as a reader who might say, I wish this were different. I wish that were different. I'm so accustomed at this point to meeting a book on its own terms. Mm-hmm. But there are things that all different readers might want more or less of. And what a wonderful thing to want more of, to want more compassion, mm-hmm. to want more efforts towards changing, you know, uh, the way we look at climate and the way we look at disaster. I think that's a really important perspective and uh, really, really appreciate that. So Lisa, you, I have not read any other Rumanalam books, but you obviously have read them very closely. How do you think this one stands out from, from the others that he's written? Well, I reviewed that kind of mother and fell in love with it. This, this was mm-hmm. a novel before Leave the World Behind, and it's about cross-racial adoption. Um, it's about a white woman who has a baby and bonds with her Black nurse, her black nurse becomes her nanny, and I won't give you the full story, mm. but eventually the white woman adopts a black son. So she has a white son and a black son, and how they are treated, and how she, mm-hmm. um, how her wh- white son gets treated one way and the black son gets treated another way, is along the same lines as Leave the World Behind. It's mm. it's an interrogation of. Um, how we act in America. And uh, the the first book, Rich and Pretty, is also about opposites. Two women, one is rich and one is pretty. They're best friends and they fall away from each other. They decide to live life differently from each other. They judge each other. And Alam's always going into, well, this is what I think of you and what do you think of me? You know, he's always uh, sort of the fly on the wall as these tensions come up. Uh, where his characters compete with each other, try to impress each other, one-up each other. Um, So that's what I think is brilliant about him, is he's writing about contemporary American society, the way women really work, the way men really work, and and added a disaster on top of it. Uh, And added a disaster on top of it, Lisa. I love that. (laughs) Let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Nicole. Hey, Nerdette, this is Nicole from Pennsylvania calling. I just finished reading Leave the World Behind last night, and I have many thoughts. 
But the thought I wanted to share with you, I was reading chapter 17, and I'm enjoying the book very much, and in the first paragraph of chapter 17, there was a, what I thought was a typo. The sentence was, there was the plash of water and the sound of the door opening and closing. And I thought, wow, there's a typo in this book. It should be splash. But then later in the book, I saw the word used several times. And I thought, I was still thinking, hmm, is this a device in the book to throw me off even more? and to feel confused and unsure and unsteady because most of the book made me feel that way. The whole time I'm thinking, what is going on? This is so bizarre. Then when I finished the book, I finally looked up the word and in fact, it is a synonym for splash, a sound produced by liquid striking something or being struck. Okay, so now I know and I'm glad I do. Thanks, take care. (laughs) <laughs> were y'all familiar with plash <laughs> i was not i thought it was it, i thought he was playing with the i thought he made it up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thank you for that yeah <laughs> i thought he was playing too i thought oh well this is just you know a conceit and he can do this because look he's taking us in so many other directions we didn't realize we were going in i'm glad she looked that up that's cool isn't that fun So as Nerd Out listeners know, we like to ask the author a spoilery question that we'll play during this conversation. And of course, the question I had to ask Ruan was, what actually happened? Like if there was a disaster that he was envisioning when he wrote this book. And here's here's what he said. I have a very unsatisfying answer to this question, which is that I don't know. I don't know. And it's really unimportant and... The book does articulate to the reader, this thing has happened. X thing has happened, Y thing has happened. There is no way, I don't think, or certainly not by design, in which you can string those together and make a logical whole. It simply won't work. Because what's being described is wholly random. And in a way, it's almost like how you would, if you mapped out the news of the day, like all of these conditions are happening, you can't fit those discrete things into a cohesive whole. It's actually just not possible. The only thing you'd end up with is like the front page of the New York Times. And it it sort of tells you something, but it doesn't really tell you anything. And I think that that is really what's happening in the book. So I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. And to me, that gets to Um, another theme of the book. Um, So it's about displacement, about disorientation. uh, It's also about the loss of technology, of Mm -hmm. all the ways that we uh, connect to learn what's happening in the world and to be cut off from that and to not have, you know, a concrete understanding minute by minute of a crisis you're in the center of um, is genius. It's, it, it, takes us as readers through the experience. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely fantastic. He doesn't know, and I'm glad he doesn't know because I think it's more powerful. I think it it shows that aspect, as I was talking about a few minutes ago, of how quickly these kinds of things are going to occur and how little information, as Lisa mentioned, with all kinds of 
news sources cut off, um, all kinds of information and communication sources cut off. This is going to be the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but uh, with all of us whimpering for our mobile devices. (laughs) Oh, I'm laughing because you're so right and it's terrifying, not because it's actually funny. (laughs) So we do a thing on our net where we like to ask our guests to... Uh, give the book a completely arbitrary rating. I really like the idea of boxes of cake. How many boxes of cake out of 10 would you give this book? I know I'm putting both of you on the spot about it. So I have another question that we could chat about before the rating, if you want to think about it first. I am curious. This actually came from a Nerdette listener. And it's a really interesting question, I think, which is where would you want to be on vacation when the world ends? I guess I should say if the world were to end, just to be slightly more hopeful. Oh, about Greta, that is a, that's a tough one. Wow. Isn't it a great question? Yes. I actually know. I oh. uh, and, and there's a very specific place in the world that I love. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to move there yet. Um, mm-hmm. I spent a number of years vacationing with our family on Cape Cod. And mm. A really special place for me is the Brewster Flats. And the Brewster Flats at Brewster on Massachusetts Bay are the biggest sand flats in the Western Hemisphere, except for Brazil. And so when it's low tide, you can walk a mile out, which is just to me the definition of peace and grace and being in the middle of, of the natural world. That is absolutely where I would want to be. That sounds beautiful. What do you think, Lisa? So this will sound like the opposite of Beth Ann. That was such a beautiful description. <laughs> um, I would uh, want to be in Chicago. Really? In a neighborhood called High Park, where I grew mm-hmm. up, right on Lake Michigan. That's where mm-hmm. I'd want to be. Uh, that neighborhood, as many people know now, uh, Barack Obama once lived in. But when I grew up there, it was largely ignored by Chicago. And to me, it is still one of the most beautiful places in the world. Mm, that's so lovely. <laughs> I love that. I This is going to sound really basic, but uh, I think I would choose the place where I've gone on a yoga retreat in Hawaii. On the north shore of the Big Island. Oh, Ooh. also a good choice. Where? It was It was just such a magical... And I don't know, I kind of love the idea of just like doing sun salutations through all the weirdness, you know? Mm-hmm. I need to hear, I need to hear about this. I need to hear about this uh, yoga retreat for sure. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> and those sun salutations are so powerful. Right. I don't. And like, yeah, the the spot on the island, it wasn't on the beach. It was essentially right next to a cliff that overlooked the ocean. So you could hear the waves Mm -hmm. while you were doing yoga. And there were all these tiny little yellow birds that would hop around on the grass. And it was just a really it's a place where I've gone back to a lot in my mind over the past year. I'll just put it that way. Oh, wow. (laughs) So what do you think about cake boxes? Well, I've been struggling here um, trying to figure out why I wouldn't give it 10 cake boxes. Mm. Because Mm -hmm. I do think this is an outstanding novel. Um, I guess I'd give it nine. 
Um, just because uh, I wanted the, the energy for me and the focus of the story in the end being all about uh, the external events um, mm -hmm. away from what I thought was the, the most interesting part of the novel, which was the racial and class uh, differences. Yeah, I'm with you. I think I would say the same thing. What do you think, Bethann? Oh, that makes it, that really makes it tough um, because I agree in a lot of ways. Yeah, I wanted more of the class and race dynamics, um, but I also wanted more of the, the fantastical elements, uh, the natural world gathering, marshalling its resources. I almost wanted more of that, although I could see it needed a light hand uh, to make that work. So I think I have to go with a nine, you know, maybe uh, nine flamingos for me instead of cake boxes. Nine flamingos, that works. We also thought about doing secret cigarettes, but I didn't know <laughs> how we all would feel about that one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, nine cake boxes for sure. Perfect. Well, Bethany and Lisa, thank you for being such close, thoughtful readers and for taking the time to chat about this lovely book with me. It was really a pleasure. Such a pleasure to be with you, Greta. Uh, such a pleasure, Greta. Thanks for the invite. And thank you to Lisa Boo. It was just great. All right, that's it today. We've got another episode coming up on Friday. Our panel is pretty great. Frankly, I'm afraid to say their names out loud in case it doesn't pan out, but just know it's cool and come back on Friday to check it out. You don't want to miss it. And of course, stay tuned for our March book announcement coming up on the first of the month. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak, and we will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.